Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be naughty. I'm going to be a naughty vampire god. <laughs> In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 154, Blade. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, a huge hi and welcome to Verbal Diorama, whether you're a brand new listener to this podcast. Obviously, welcome back, regular returning listeners. Thank you for coming back <laughs> and thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing this podcast because let's be honest, there are a lot of podcasts out there. There are a lot of podcasts that cover superhero movies and I've covered a lot of superhero movies just recently of late but no matter how you found this podcast I'm so happy to have you here because we're going to be talking about the history and legacy of Blade and this is going to be such a fascinating episode I'm so excited to be talking about Blade but before I do as always I always like to say thank you to everyone who's listened to the most previous recent episodes of this podcast so we've most recently had episodes on Superman and Batman, literally two of the biggest superheroes in the entire world. I'm pretty certain everybody knows Superman and Batman. And what I'm doing is I'm doing something called Heroes Through the Decades. So I started with Jason and the Argonauts in the 60s and then into the 70s with Superman, the 80s with Batman, and now we're moving into the 90s. And is there any movie that is more 90s than Blade. I don't think there is. Blade is a proper 90s movie. I don't mean that in a derogatory sense because the 90s was awesome. Guys, if you grew up in the 90s, you know how awesome the 90s was. And Ray Harryhausen made us all believe in monsters. Superman made us believe a man could fly. Batman made the caped crusader dark again. But Blade was something else, something wholly unique. Blade was an 18 rated comic book movie and it leaned into its horror roots. And also, it starred an African-American superhero. And so basically, we're going from Batman with 
lots of black leather to blade with lots of black leather. Black leather was a bit of a thing in the 90s as well. And interestingly, New Line Cinema is owned by Warner Brothers, who also own DC. And they also distributed both Superman and Batman. So there's a lot of links with this movie and Batman, but there's also a lot of links with Batman and Superman. And if you're a regular listener, you'll know how much I love links between episodes. It's one of my favourite things to find. So without further ado, let's start with the trailer for Blade. You better wake up. The world you live in is just a sugar-coated topic. There is another world beneath it. The real world. For thousands of years, they have existed among us. You keep your eyes open. They're everywhere. Chances are you've seen them yourself and didn't know it. A secret nation. Our livelihood depends on our ability to blend in. With a lust for power. We should be ruling the humans. These people are our food. They've got their claws into everything. Politics, finance, real estate. There's a war going on out there. He makes the weapons. I use them. Now, one will lead them to conquer mankind. Tonight, the age of man comes to an end. We're gonna be gods. And one will try to stop him dead. There are worse things out tonight than vampires. Like what? Like me. Half human. Blade's mother was attacked by a vampire while she was pregnant. Half immortal. You got the best of both worlds. All our strengths. None of our weaknesses. He is their greatest fear. And our only hope. Soap and season on all vampires. Snipes, Stephen Dorff. You're one of them, aren't you? No, I'm something else. Blade. Infected by vampirism as a baby in utero, Eric Brooks is born as his mother dies from being bitten by a vampire. He becomes a Dampier, a hybrid with the supernatural abilities of a vampire, but able to withstand the traditional weaknesses. He has no aversion to silver or garlic and can walk in the daylight. He survives on a special serum, a substitute for consuming human blood, and fights the vampire plague in Detroit. When he saves a young doctor after being bitten, he introduces her to his world, a world where he's neither human nor vampire, and seemingly the enemy of both. Quickly run through the cast, as always, we have Wesley Snipes as Eric Brooks, a.k.a. Blade, Boucher Wright as Dr. Karen Jensen, Stephen Dorff as Deacon Frost, Chris Christopherson as Abraham Whistler, Donald Logue as Quinn, Udo Kia as Gitano Dragonetti, Sonar Lathan as Vanessa Brooks, Ardi Jova as Mercury, and Eric Edwards as Pearl. Blade was written by David S. Goya, is directed by Stephen Norrington and is based on Blade by Marv Wolfman and Gene Colan. So the story of Blade, we're going to start in January 1971 and we're going to talk about something called the Comics Code Authority. And the Comics Code Authority updated its code criteria, 
which had been in place since 1954. Now allowed within comics were the sympathetic depiction of criminal behaviour and corruption among public officials, as long as it was portrayed as exceptional and the culprit was punished. Also the killing of law enforcement officers and the suggestion, but not portrayal, of seduction. It also relaxed its rules on the depiction of horror in comics. Previously, the code had stated all scenes of horror, excessive bloodshed, gory or gruesome crimes, depravity, lust, sadism and masochism shall not be permitted. And no comic magazine shall use the words horror or terror in its title. For the first time, supernatural creatures like vampires, werewolves and ghouls were allowed in comics as long as they had a background in classical literature, such as Dracula and Frankenstein. Zombies did not have the literal representation, so they remained taboo. Marvel actually got around this by calling them Zuvembies, which is so sweet. Marvel published its first step into vampire lore, taking advantage of the new code rules in October 1971, when the character Michael Morbius debuted in The Amazing Spider-Man number 101. He was afflicted with pseudo-vampirism through trying to find a cure for his rare blood disease. He could also infect others with his pseudo-vampirism by biting them. His first starring comic was Morbius the Living Vampire in 1992. There's a reason I'm talking about Morbius, several in fact, but mostly because Morbius was Marvel testing the water for a proper vampire title and to bring out the vampiric big guns, Dracula himself. The first issue of The Tomb of Dracula, a 70-issue series featuring a group of vampire hunters who fought Count Dracula and other supernatural menaces, was published in April 1972. And as Bram Stoker's famous character was in the public domain, there was no limit to the depictions of his character. He was joined by Quincy Harker, son of Jonathan and Mina Harker, and Rachel Van Helsing, granddaughter of Abraham Van Helsing. Famously helmed by several different writers for the first six issues, including uncredited writing by Stan Lee, the seventh issue was scripted by Marv Wolfman, who based Dracula on actor Jack Palance. In 1973, writer Marv Wolfman and artist Gene Colan decided to create a new supporting character for the Tomb of Dracula number 10, and he was based on two white guys' interpretation of exploitation, with afro hair, teak-bladed knives, a green leather jacket, and massive yellow shades, with very cliched African-American dialogue. Blade appeared in issues 10 to 21 and again in issue 28. Wolfman temporarily retired the character for a year before bringing him back as less of a black caricature in September 1974. In December 1974, Blade got his first solo story in Vampire Tales number 8, a black and white comic book, would cameo in stories for Ghost Rider in 1992 and co-starred in Night Stalkers and Midnight Suns in 1993. And after Night Stalkers was cancelled in 1994, got his first solo colour comic book series. And this was Blade the Vampire Hunter. He started out as a normal human immune to vampire bites. And it was him being bitten by Morbius the Living Vampire that gave Blade his Daywalker abilities and turned him into a Dampier. In the comics, he was trained and raised by Jamal Afari. That character would become Whistler further down the line. Blade wasn't the first African-American superhero to grace the big screen, though. Robert Townsend's The Meteor Man in 1993 was the first official big screen black superhero and was a showcase of black acting talent, with supporting cast including James L. Jones, Don Cheadle, Jennifer Lewis and Eddie Griffin. Blade also wasn't the first attempt by Marvel at a movie adaptation of a comic book character, because that honour 
falls to Howard the Duck, an experience which no one at Marvel wanted to repeat. While there were several Marvel properties in the air for potential movie adaptations in the early 90s, they were mostly very well-known properties. The Fantastic Four, The Incredible Hulk, Spider-Man, X-Men, and also non-Marvel properties, Superman Lives. That's the third mention of Superman Lives in three episodes now. This podcast is not sponsored by Nicolas Cage, I promise. And these were all in differing levels of pre-production at the time. Blade, as a character property, was fairly obscure in comparison. And this is something that I'm going to bring up a bit later on as well. In 1992, two projects were announced with Wesley Snipes and LL Cool J headlining each. When New World Pictures obtained the Marvel Comics rights, they planned to film a Western set in Mexico starring Richard Roundtree as the vampire hunter Blade. When rapper and actor LL Cool J expressed interest in playing the lead role, Marvel Studios began developing the film with David S. Goya attached to write the script and Ernest Dickerson, who would go on to direct the excellent black hero-led Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight, this episode 66 of this podcast. And this was all starting to happen in 1995. But I hear you cry, where is Wesley Snipes? Well, June 1992, Wesley Snipes announced he was going ahead with making a movie version of his favourite comic book character, Black Panther. And he'd been approached by Marvel. And at the time, Snipes was box office gold. He'd starred in massive hits like White Men Can't Jump and Passenger 57. He'd worked on Demolition Man, which was released in 1993. And then he entered into talks with Columbia Pictures to portray Black Panther, which he saw as a unique opportunity to tell a truly black story away from cultural stereotypes and to go back to the continent of Africa because African-Americans had had their African heritage stolen from them. It was an opportunity to tell a story from and for the black community, as well as for the rest of the world. At the time, Marvel was in financial dire straits. They'd already tried to sell the X-Men to Orion and Carol Co. before they both went bankrupt. And so they intended to sell X-Men and Black Panther to Columbia as a package deal. But nothing ended up materialising by January 1996. Snipes at the time blamed a poor understanding of the character by screenwriters and basically cited that many seemed to think that Black Panther was about the Black Panther Party and not the character from the comics. Marvel, of course, would go on to declare bankruptcy in 1996 and Fox would ultimately gain the film rights to X-Men. Black Panther's big screen debut would stall, mostly due to the elaborate special effects required. Wesley Snipes would, however, receive a script for an adaptation of Blade. And the rest, as they say, is history. But... This is the podcast all about the history and legacy. So let's go into how Wesley Snipes got involved with Blade after being so set on Black Panther. David S. Goya heard that New Line was looking to make a low-budget black superhero movie. And with Marvel in financial dire straits, selling the rights to their biggest heroes, New Line was looking into the possibility of either Blade or Luke Cage. Goya went in and pitched an entire Blade trilogy and he called it the Star Wars of black vampire movies. He was adamant that Blade be a comic book movie grounded in reality, and he wanted to depict vampirism as a disease that spreads, and additionally add things about racial animosity and prejudice between pure-blood vampires and turned vampires, and then have this half-breed being the guy who kills both of those types of vampires indiscriminately. Blade would have a foot in each world, but be a part of neither. After New Line asked if Blade could be white, Goya, thankfully, rebuffed this ridiculous suggestion and doubled down on his script being nothing like any superhero movie, including having a lead character 
who was black. That was very important to him. And obviously, we'd had the likes of Superman and Batman. But Superman and Batman, this was not going to be. And interestingly, Goya would go on to write the Dark Knight trilogy. He'd also write Man of Steel and Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. So he would know a little bit about Superman and Batman. Blade was going to be a martial arts, R-rated, horror, blood splatterfest with none of the gothic, romanticised version of Dracula, like in Bram Stoker's Dracula, that's episode 118 of this podcast, or of vampires in general, like Interview with the Vampire was. And it'd include huge 90s raves, martial arts sequences, and copious amounts of blood. Unfortunately, this version of Blade would be more expensive than the sub-$10 million Blade they originally wanted. But New Line weren't demotivated by the cost because it could work if you got the right actor portraying Blade. You could create the movie around a hugely popular name. Studio head Mike DeLuca suggested casting ideas for the part, stating, I'll make it for $40 million if you can get Denzel Washington, $35 million if you can get Wesley Snipes, and $20 million if you can get Lawrence Fishburne. Goya had only one name in mind, though, and that was Wesley Snipes. After a run of working with Spike Lee, Wesley Snipes gained international recognition. I've already mentioned White Men Can't Jump. Both Snipes and Woody Harrelson debuted in the same movie that was Wildcats in 1986, and they were reunited in White Men Can't Jump. Obviously, Passenger 57 in 1992, where he demonstrated his martial arts. Demolition Man cemented him as an action star in 1993. And To Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar is probably one of my favourite movies of his because... You would not expect Wesley Snipes to take the role over drag queen Noxima Jackson, and nor would you expect him to absolutely kill it in that role either. Just FYI, To Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, is a brilliantly fun movie. Please check it out if you've not seen it. Wesley Snipes, in the meantime, created his own production company, Amon Ra Films, in 1991. And one of the most fascinating things about this movie in particular and about this franchise is that Wesley Snipes isn't just the star of these movies. He's also a producer of these movies, which meant that he had a lot of clout behind the scenes too, and that's practically unheard of for a superhero movie in general, especially a superhero movie in the 90s. And it shows how invested Snipes was in the production. He was literally invested in the production. And like both Christopher Reeve and Michael Keaton before him in this miniseries, Snipes was all in on this character with all the charisma and self-assuredness required to be Blade. He is the literal perfect casting for Blade. And just on a side note, I think Mahershala Ali is going to be absolutely amazing as the new Blade in the MCU. But as a legacy for Ali to take from, there really is no better than Wesley Snipes. I mean, less said about Blade Trinity, the better at this stage. But anyway, back to the story of Blade, because the pre-production of Blade ran parallel to something else happening at Marvel, which was Marvel Knights. This was Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti's attempt to reinvent characters whose comics had been long cancelled and that not many readers actually cared about. Marvel Knights would be mature and it would breathe new life into old characters and update them for the 21st century. And among them would be the likes of Daredevil, Punisher and the Inhumans. Blade took the Marvel Knights approach, became aware of the changing times and represented a new wave of comic book movies. Comic book movies were going to be cool again. They were going to wear black leather and kick ass again. They were going to wear shades again. And they'd embrace their ludicrousy while also being grounded in dark, grimy reality, much like Batman in 1989 and The Crow in 1994. I've also done an episode on The Crow, by the way. That's episode 148. 
just mere few episodes ago. Rounding out the cast of Blade were Sonal Lathan, cast because Snipes had wanted to work with her and wanted a legendary beauty to play his mum, because of course she would, Udo Kia, who had played vampires previously, notably in Andy Warhol's 1974 Dracula, former It Boy Stephen Dorff, who wanted his Deacon Frost to be the new generation of the Lost Boys, Chris Christopherson, the personal hero of fellow actor Donal Logue, as well as N. Boucher Wright, as more than just a girlfriend for Blade, but as a hematologist who could actually make a difference to his world. Wright was cast as the female lead because it was, and still is, so rare to have a darker-skinned black woman cast in that female lead role. Both Sonar Lathan and Wesley Snipes mentioned the revolutionary nature of casting N. Boucher Wright in an interview piece for Entertainment Weekly for Blade's 20th anniversary. Wright would end up retiring from public life after her father, jazz musician Stanley Wright, was murdered in 2011. His murderer has never been brought to justice, sadly. And by all accounts, it was the trifecta of Snipes, Goya and director Stephen Norrington that were the steadfast, passionate hands behind Blade, each man having respect for the character, the setting and of giving the character the movie he deserved. Blade was Norrington's second feature film as director and he'd only end up doing two more. Reportedly, his final film, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, was such a harrowing experience he wouldn't return to the director's chair ever again after it. Before becoming a director, Norrington was a special effects artist who worked on Aliens and Alien 3. Also, both previous episodes of this podcast, 114 and 115. By the way, Norrington took his previous experience working on sets with James Cameron and David Fincher and would design detailed storyboards for Blade, including the highly elaborate rave scene, probably one of the most famous scenes in the movie. It contained lots of dancing extras and a lot of corn syrup falling from the ceiling sprinkler system. That scene was shot in a rundown meatpacking factory over three days and many of the extras had no idea it was going to rain down fake blood. Many extras actually packed up and left. The cleanup afterwards was also very interesting. It was sticky and smelly and hot and Basically, that corn syrup got everywhere, in every crack. Little Ghostbusters 2016 reference for you there. Principal photography on Blade started on the 5th of February 1997 with shooting in Los Angeles, specifically a former shampoo factory in Canoga Park, Los Angeles, and also Death Valley as well. Effects for Blade were provided by Greg Cannon Creations. And when it came to the character of Pearl, the set actually had to be built around the character since he was so big. The latex skin with hand airbrushed blue veins weighed around 700 pounds and had to be transported with a forklift. It needed four persons to perform as Pearl, one at the head, one at each arm and one at the feet, as well as actual actor as Pearl, Eric Edwards as the head. All of the puppeteers in the suit had video monitors built in so they could see what the other puppeteers were doing. Pearl is surrounded by used blood bags and garbage but they originally planned to spread dead babies and children around him as well because they figured Pearl was too huge to move around quickly and would require easy prey. And yes, that is gross to use the term easy prey when it comes to babies and children. They felt dead children was probably too much of an audience turnoff, thankfully, and so they never did it because, I'm sorry, even I draw the line at that. The burning of his skin from a UV ray gun was achieved by smoke tubes and burned skin makeup improvised on set. And the makeup for the movie was done by Greg Cannon. He's no stranger to vampire movies, actually. He's done the makeup and all the prosthetic makeup for 
Bram Stoker's Dracula, The Lost Boys, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, Van Helsing, couple of episodes of Tales from the Crypt because it counts, and also Blade. The makeup of Donald Logue's burned corpse proved interesting when he ended up in a real hospital after filming a scene in the fictional hospital. He ended up dislocating his jaw after face planting on the floor, and producer Peter Frankfurt ended up taking him to a real hospital in his full burn makeup, in his underwear, with his jaw practically hanging off. I bet the nurses and doctors were really wondering why he was in the hospital. And what is still strikingly obvious about Blade is the physicality of Wesley Snipes. Jeff Ward, Blade's stunt coordinator, was saying in an interview with Cinefastique in February 1998 that Snipes could do anything, that his flexibility and martial arts ability were enhanced by a background in dance, and that Snipes didn't hold back either. After showing a little of what he could do in Passenger 57, he turns the dial up to 11 in Blade and did the majority of his own stunts. Snipes and Ward have known each other since making the film Streets of Fire in 1984. Ward trained Snipes in Filipino martial arts. And very early on, it was decided to make Blade have an element of Hong Kong action films, which obviously helped when working with supernatural elements like vampires who had to be fast, agile and strong. Blade was doing wire work and bullet time before The Matrix was. Stephen Norrington was very hands-on with the choreography of weapons and Blade has an arsenal of weapons at his disposal, including armor-plated vests, silver bullets laced with garlic, silver stakes, a converted Mac-10 auto which fires five shots a second, a sawn-off shotgun, and a saber. Additionally, Buffy the Vampire Slayer had debuted as a mid-season replacement in 1997, so Vampire Slayers were hot right now. But unlike Buffy before it, Blade doesn't lean too much into traditional vampire lore or legend, Vampires in the Blade trilogy have no sensitivities to religious icons like a crucifix, as it stated early on. They can also easily cross flowing streams and enter dwellings without being requested. Furthermore, their sensitivity to garlic and sunlight appears to be the result of a specific biological intolerance or allergy, and their reliance on foreign blood is explained as the result of a haemoglobin deficiency, giving the impression that the film is more science fiction than supernatural in nature. Blade instead tells a fairly well-known story of class conflict, with the ruling house of Arabis as the purebred aristocracy versus the commoner turned vampires as lesser vampires. It could also be an apt metaphor for racism, homophobia, misogyny, any situation where one group believes they're better than another. In the comics, Deacon Frost is an older character. He was essentially de-aged so that Stephen Dorff could play him, but he was originally perceived as an Alan Rickman-esque character. I mean, how awesome would Alan Rickman be in any movie, let alone this one? But they wanted someone who genuinely doesn't give two hoots about vampire purity and, you know, literally just wants to do what vampires are here to do, feed and copulate. They wanted Frost and Blade to be the complete 180 of each other, but to also have a secondary antagonist in the ruling house that Frost desperately wants to take down. And Blade is a remarkably layered film for a comic book adaptation in the 90s when comic book adaptations really weren't a thing unless you were Batman. And obviously we all know what happened to Batman in the 90s, as I said last episode. I'm a huge fan of those Joel Schumacher movies, but Batman and Robin kind of did kill Batman for a little while. Blade introduces traditional vampire editions like familiars, but also an entire underground vampire society, as well as the idea that anyone could be in the pockets of that society, such as the police, doormen, even the local sex workers. 
Frost sees a future where vampires reign supreme, but not the purebred vampires, because he sees them as stuck in the past. Modern vampires are where it's at. And additionally, his plan to turn everyone into vampires seems a little odd. Uh, a deleted scene would show select humans as blood bags to provide the blood to sustain the vampiric world. But it is a finite resource, so I don't think Frost planned that out very well. Daybreakers in 2009 would take that idea and actually do a decent job with it. And I always love to mention this, but long-time listeners may remember that I almost did an episode on Daybreakers back in 2019, and Daybreakers just never came back. It basically just died a terrible vampiric death and never returned from the dead. But if anyone does want an episode on Daybreakers, then let me know, because that's actually quite a fun movie, and it's a movie that a lot of people, I think, don't appreciate for being a good movie. The Eastern European origins of Dracula would also provide inspiration for the vampiric language used in the movie. And despite the fact that the language was only used for two scenes, uh, and this is when a vampire elder berates Frost and when Pearl yells about the blood god, UCLA linguistics professor Victoria Fromkin was hired to design a vampire language after she created the Parkus language from the TV series Land of the Lost in 1974. Although the language sounds Slavic or Hungarian, Fromkin blended vaguely Russian and Czech words to create the vampire's language, employing its Eastern European origins as a reference for Transylvania. And when it came to releasing this movie, the original cut was 2 hours 20 minutes, and it was screened for test audiences. But they did not like it. The release date was delayed 6 months to arrange reshoots. The insertion of the final sword fight between Blade and Deacon Frost, which did not occur in the original edit, was the most important modification. In the original ending, instead of preserving his shape, Frost transformed into La Magra and became a vast, swirling mass of blood. But the filmmakers couldn't get the special effects to appear properly, and so it was shelved. This is included in a bonus feature on the DVD. Also removed were the vampires triumphing in the end, having brought about the vampire apocalypse, the idea was Blade and Karen would destroy vampire food storage facilities in a planned sequel, but the directors modified it since they didn't know if there was going to be a sequel. Also removed, Stan Lee had an appearance in the film as a police officer, but it was eventually cut. He would have been one of the cops who arrived at the Blood Rave after the shooting and discovered Quinn's body on fire. Stephen Norrington also cameoed in a deleted scene as Michael Morbius, there's that name again. We'd have to wait till 2022 for Jared Leto's interpretation of that character. Due to rights, Sony owns the rights for Morbius and Marvel owns Blade. So it's unlikely that Morbius will be the creator of Blade in the MCU. And because the previous two episodes on Superman and Batman, I've talked about credits and lawsuits in those episodes. And you'll notice that both Marv Wolfman and Gene Colan are credited for characters created by in this movie. Still. Wolfman sued Marvel, New Line and Time Warner after Blade's release, claiming he was not bound by a work-for-hire contract when he created the character in 1972, meaning that he owns the rights to the characters of Blade and Deacon Frost and not Marvel. He claimed he did not authorise the use of his characters in the movie and requested compensatory and punitive damages in excess of $35 million. A ruling in Marvel's favour was handed down on November 6, 2000, stating that Marvel's later use of the characters were sufficiently different from Wolfman's initial creations to protect it from Wolfman's claim of copyright ownership and denied his lawsuit. This ruling also paved the way for the sequel to commence production, 
but more on the sequel another time. Maybe in a few months. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Let's move on to the obligatory Keanu reference of this episode. And to be honest, I think you know where I'm going with this. But this is a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And I've already mentioned The Matrix. And I think it's safe to say that Blade went into the future, saw The Matrix, and then went back to the past and decided that that's how Blade was going to look with the black leather and sunglasses. Right? I'm being slightly facetious because there are a few similarities between Blade and The Matrix. Both feature a character who discovers that the reality they live in is a facade and that it is, in fact, invisibly controlled by an outside force. There's a small underground group of fighters battling the invisible oppressors. The action is heavily based on martial arts and the protagonist is dressed in a long black trench coat. There's also bullet time in Blade as well as in The Matrix. But to be honest, all of these parallels are completely coincidental because while Blade came out a year before The Matrix, The Matrix had been written, planned and storyboarded long before Blade's release. So it is a complete coincidence that Blade and The Matrix are pretty similar. But I'm sure that Wesley Snipes just really wants to be Keanu Reeves. I'm sure of it. (laughs) Maybe? Maybe not. Let's move on to the music because I think A lot of people remember Blade for a certain iconic scene. The score by Mark Isham is ever so slightly overshadowed by the soundtrack because the soundtrack features a wide range of musical genres, including hip-hop, techno, electronic and alternative rock. It is very 90s. And unless you grew up or lived through the 90s, you won't know the meaning. But trust me, raves were all the rage in the 90s. I myself, I was slightly too young to go to a rave in 1998, but... This soundtrack was so popular that four singles were released in the US. Wreck the Discotheque by Roger Sanchez and Solson, Reservations by PA, Deadly Zone by Bounty Killer, Mob Deep and Big Noid, and Half and Half by Gangstar and M.O.P. The soundtrack peaked at number 36 in the US Billboard 200 and number 16 in Germany's album chart. The Prodigy were approached to do the soundtrack for Blade, but they declined due to other commitments. And speaking of the music as well, to promote Blade, they went across America and they did huge vampire parties. And interestingly, in 2015, in an homage to Blade, a thousand ravers were drenched in fake blood at an after party for New York Comic Con. They recreated scenes from the movie and headliners Crystal Method, whose music appears in Blade 2, took to the stage. It was basically one big, huge blood rave. And it kind of makes me a little bit sad that they don't do those regularly because I feel like I'd really want to go to a Blade Blood Rave. (laughs) I feel like that's very me. I'm probably not the right age demographic anymore for Blood Raves, but it sounds like it'd be so much fun. So yeah, if you want to plan a Blood Rave, then let me know and I'll come along. When it came to Blade being released, Blade really was Marvel's first big box office success. And it's also responsible for bringing R-rated superheroes to the forefront, although our rented superheroes are kind of really still not a thing, unless you're Deadpool. But anyway, it was released on the 21st of August 1998 to a relatively quiet week. There was nothing else that really came out the same time. It dethroned Saving Private Ryan after a four-week stint at number one. There's Something About Mary was at number three after seven weeks. Blade did $23 million in its first week and stayed at number one for its second week with, again, not much competition. Except there's something about Mary was still doing good business. That movie only made $3 million less than Blade, 
in its eighth week. And I think we forget what a juggernaut there's something about Mary was. Maybe I need to do an episode on that one because that movie was huge in 1998. On a $45 million budget, Blade returned $70.1 million in the US and $61.1 million internationally for a total worldwide gross of $131.2 million. So yes, Blade did exceptionally good business. But despite Blade being a huge financial success, Marvel would only make $25,000 from the movie due to the complex licensing negotiations behind the scenes. Ten years later, Marvel Studios would make Iron Man in a hugely complex deal with Merrill Lynch that I've spoken about in other episodes of this podcast, so I'm not going to repeat them. But the early workings of this deal came from the success of Blade, then the success of X-Men in 2000, and then the amazing success of Spider-Man in 2002. And um, we have the 2000s next in this miniseries, and I've already done X-Men, so hmm, you kind of know where I'm going with this. But I need to talk about sequels because I really do love this movie. I have such a fondness for Blade, but Blade 2 is my favourite Blade movie. And the excellent Guillermo del Toro headline sequel is definitely coming to this podcast very soon. I adore Blade 2 so much. It's a travesty, really, that Blade 2 isn't as well respected as it deserves because Blade 2, honestly, is one of the best superhero sequels ever. The second sequel, Blade Trinity, isn't as good. I don't really remember it, in all honesty, because I've not really seen it that much. But it introduces Ryan Reynolds before he was Deadpool and Jessica Biel to the Blade-verse. This was followed by Blade the series in 2006, starring Kirk as Sticky Fingers Jones as Blade. Wesley Snipes has always expressed an interest into returning to the role, but in 2012, the rights to Blade reverted back to Marvel. And in 2019, Marvel Studios announced a reboot set in the MCU and announced Mahershala Ali as Blade, whom Snipes expressed his support of. And hopefully, fingers crossed, we might get a little Wesley Snipes cameo in the new Blade movie. It would be a nice way to pay tribute to Wesley Snipes for what he did for comic book movies and for this character and for everything, everything that Wesley Snipes has done, maybe not the tax avoidance, but everything else Wesley Snipes has done. Yeah, maybe just give him a little cameo in the new Blade movie. Let's move on to some social media thoughts. So we're going to start with the patrons of this podcast. We're going to move on to Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. But we're going to start with the patrons and we're going to start with Ian. And Ian says, I watched this in the cinema when it came out. I would have been at most 13. It was in our local three-screen cinema, and I think they were just happy to get people through the door. I didn't realise it was a comic book film at the time. I've watched it again since a few times, and I still enjoy it. Wesley Snipes is fantastic as Blade too. Brendan says, Even as superhero movies have evolved since 1998, there's something about Blade that still makes Wesley Snipes' Daywalker seem fresh and exciting. From the hero's genre-defining entrance in the club scene to the straightforward yet satisfying quest revenge story, it's a reminder of what meat and potatoes filmmaking can be when using the right tools and talent. And that's before you dig into the themes of a black man fighting against a life-sucking power structure obsessed with bloodlines and prophets who controls the police. Perennial commenter Andy returns and he says, Ugh, this movie. The last film that came out during my geek salad defining run as a video store manager, a movie that my employees wouldn't shut the F up about. After taking their advice and watching it, I was stunned by just how in your face the action was, and not in a good way. 
The dialogue is really difficult to cut through and Stephen Dorff played a better villain when he did those e-cigarette ads where he made it sound like smokers were in a pressed glass. The opening club scene reminds me of a Bioskin Strips ad from around the same time and looks like it was set in the same club. I can't find the ad online anywhere but I chuckle when I combine the two. Sorry, I really dislike this movie but I do look forward to engaging in a more positive conversation when you inevitably do Del Toro's Blade 2. It's like you know me. Andy. And any patron who has a podcast, I like to give them a bit of a plug. So I'm going to plug Andy's podcast, Geek Salad. Maybe don't go there for a Blade episode because I doubt one exists, let's be honest. But you can go there for all of your geeky, nerdy needs, video game needs, your comic book needs, your movie needs, your TV needs. All of your needs basically are found at Geek Salad. I'll put some information in the show notes. Please check out Andy's podcast. And the final patron comment comes from Scott, who says, this came out of nowhere and was just flat out entertainment. I seem to remember going with my good friend Kev and had a blast despite an old drunken couple in the room in front. To this day, I still ponder why any mother ever would try an ice skate up a hill. And um, yeah, unfortunately, not getting past the swear filter there, Scott, sorry. So as I said before, I do normally give Patreon's podcast a bit of a plug. Now, Scott does have a podcast. It is a little bit dormant at the moment. They haven't released a new episode in a little while, but it is still well worth your time. It's basically just a group of guys who get together and enthuse about their love for film and the experiences of watching film. And Scott and I watch a lot of films together. As of recording, we're actually going to be watching a film together at the cinema tomorrow night. So I know how much Scott loves movies. So please check out Monkey See, Monkey Review. I'll put information in the show notes. Right, it's time to move over to Twitter. And we're going to start with at Harry Met Movies, who said, Best opening scene in a film, up there with Jack Sparrow as one of the best character introductions in a movie. I think it's a fab film, only let down slightly by the end fight. At Kev Haney said, I remember feeling there wasn't much like it at that point. I caught it a few times on release and loved to watch the audiences react. Snipes gets most of the accolade, but I found Stephen Dorff just as effective. At Chance Whitmore 5 said, Great movie, well cast, stylishly directed and a lot of fun. My one complaint is that clunky finale battle, though the alternative would have been worse. I'm not sure we would have gotten the MCU without this film. At UK Film Nerd said, There didn't seem to be anything like this at the time. It was so cool and I loved it to bits. The sequel was even better. It was the first DVD I ever bought, imported from the US with Tremors. I haven't watched it in years, so I wonder if it's still as cool today. Yeah, it is. At Nightmare Pod said, One of my favourites. Snipes is another level of cool. Best opening scene of a movie. Blade did so much for Marvel, yet it's like they have forgotten about him. At Alonzo the Artist said, Blade was amazing. It absolutely exceeded expectations when I saw it for the first time. That it was a black superhero that opened the door for the MCU to walk through gives me an especially glorious source of pride. At 30 Podcast said, I love it. It was the first DVD I ever bought. Then I discovered my player had a loop feature, so I'd put this movie in and just let it play all day. Whenever my sister and I would do something we knew our parents would object to, we called each other Naughty Vampire Gods. At Needed Road said, Whatever happened to Stephen Dorff and Stephen Norrington? Well, Stephen Dorff? Still acting? I remember seeing him in True Detective a few years back. Stephen Norrington? was one of the directors in line for The Crow reboot back in 2013. But he hasn't actually directed a movie since The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which, as I mentioned before, he had a particularly rough time with. 
And both Stevens are still good friends by all accounts as well, which is quite nice. At StuntGoat75 said, The film that kicked off the modern superhero movies, still very stylish and blood-soaked. Wesley Snipes seemed perfect casting, and it's going to be very big boots for Mahershala Ali to fill. At Fantasia R replied and said, Absolutely, we were totally starved for comic book action, and this was horror and comic book action personified. Remember going up Merry Hill to watch it as the Worcester Odeon was, and still is, an abomination. And quite apt to finish on at Jonathan Blade who said the blood rave scene is one of the greatest scenes in the history of cinema and a cultural benchmark for the influence of the 90s rave scene on film. Blade is still tight and effective, more so than other era films in its genre, parentheses mid-budget grimdark action. Wesley Snipes, comics Blade became Wesley Snipes after this movie. Enough said. Moving over to Instagram, we have at sassylessy76, who said, Seeing Blade on the big screen when it came out was a blast. The theatre was packed and the excitement bounced off the walls. Wesley Snipes was very impressive as the daywalker and had a powerful and intimidating growl. I think I need to revisit this film. Absolutely, Tari, you need to revisit this film because it's brilliant fun. And moving over to Facebook, we have comments on Facebook again. This is amazing. From the same two guys as well. So we're going to start with Andy, who said, I wasn't around for when Blade came on the scene way back in 1972. And being a DC boy growing up, I had never heard of him until this film was released parentheses first Marvel superhero film question mark I think this may have helped as I had no idea of the character the film is an absolute corker from the headache inducing fight in the nightclub scene which leaves you exhausted at the end of it saw it multiple times when it came out but this and Blade 2 are excellent but just let the blood wash over you any scrutiny and it falls apart Blade is loud dumb and violent but in a good way and the final comment comes from Tony who said Blade was an excellent adaptation of a dark comics character one of Wesley Snipes' best roles, in my opinion. The success of Blade allowed for the Marvel Cinematic Universe to exist. The opening nightclub fight scene is still iconic. Thank you, everyone, for getting involved on this episode on Blade, whether you're a patron, whether you're on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Always so grateful and delighted to get people's comments. So thank you very much. We all know Mahershala Ali will kill it, literally as Blade in the MCU because he's Mahershala Ali and he's incredible. But it's really hard to see anyone else but Wesley Snipes in this role. He brings all the wisecracks, all the personality and pizzazz and self-assured arrogance that Blade needs. And I don't mean that in a negative sense because Blade needs to be an arrogant character. And Wesley Snipes is so cool and he knows it. And I love that he infuses Blade with that confidence. Not to mention his physicality, his martial arts prowess. It's easy to see why Blade is a character who's so special to so many, especially to the black community and so special to Snipes as well. To see a powerful, strong, pick-ass black man on screen, a black man take on the systematic corruption of a world run by old white vampires, to partner him with a black woman who was more than just a love interest. To make it violent, visceral and extremely bloody feels like a huge risk, not only now, but at the time as well. And it's certainly a risk I feel like the MCU is not going to go anywhere near, unfortunately, for this Blade reboot. Blade might not have done X-Men box office, but what Blade did do is take a character from comics that not many people knew of and made him a bankable box office prospect. It's likely Marvel took note of this, and we're looking in the list of properties it did own because 
let's not forget X-Men and Spider-Man were completely off the table at this point, realised it could make movies with Iron Man and Thor and Captain America and that people probably would go and see those movies. And of course they did. But most of all, Marvel realised that like Blade, it had its own arsenal of weapons. And within 10 years, that's exactly what they did. Coming a year after Batman and Robin all but killed the comic book movie, according to some, and I make no secret of the fact that I really enjoy those Joel Schumacher Batman movies. So to me, that's a title that that movie definitely does not deserve. But even compared to Batman and Robin, Blade feels even more fresh and different. And it goes a long way to prove to the likes of Marvel that you don't need to rehash the same origin story every time. That a comic book movie isn't a genre, very much like animation actually. That comic books can be action adventures or romances or fantasies or war stories or superhero tales or indeed horrors. And Blade, as a tongue-in-cheek gory horror movie, deserves your respect. A superhero movie deserves your respect. As a black superhero movie deserves your respect. And for paving the way for the cinematic landscape we have now, we might not always entirely like modern superhero cinema all the time, but he deserves respect for that too. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Blade. And if you do want to get involved with this podcast and you want your comments read out in episodes, then all you need to do is comment on the thoughts posts that go up, usually on a Saturday on social media. The social media is at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Leave a comment on that tweet or on that post and I will read it out in the next episode. So it's really easy to get involved if you want to on this podcast. And most importantly, you can support this podcast in so many ways and it's all completely free. So you can tell your friends and family about this podcast, especially if they're a huge fan of Blade. You can also leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. And the easiest thing, well, they're all quite easy actually, but another easy thing is you can retweet or like posts on social media. As I said, at Verbal Diorama, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and also Letterboxd as well. And if you like this episode on Blade, you might also like the following movies slash episodes of this podcast. I'm going to recommend to you Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight. It's episode 66. I've mentioned it before with reference to Ernest Dickerson. Now, that is a really important movie, I think, in so many different ways. Not only is it a really fun, campy movie, it's based on the Tales from the Crypt TV show. It also felt very unique for its time. Bear in mind, this is a movie that came out in the early 90s. And it's also a movie where a black woman saves the world. That black woman is played by Jada Pinkett Smith. Please don't say anything bad about her because you know what happens if anyone says anything bad about Jada. But Jada Pinkett Smith is amazing in that movie. You've got some amazing Billy Zane in that movie as well. And it's really underrated. It used to be on late nights on TV. If you see it on streaming or on DVD, pick up a copy of Demon Knight because it's brilliant fun. Episode 122. So this is an episode on the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. I've also done an episode way back when on the Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV show. I did an episode on Hush. I'm a huge Buffy fan. And obviously I had to reference Buffy in this episode because these two properties, Buffy and Blade, came out at about the same time. They're both slayers and literally any excuse to reference Buffy and I'm going to take it. Now, the movie is a bit campy and a bit silly and the TV show definitely takes things a little bit more seriously. 
I would highly recommend the TV show to anyone. But if you're looking for an hour and a half's worth of really cheesy fun entertainment, you can't really go worse than Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I'm also going to recommend episode 118, Bram Stoker's Dracula, because it's got Keanu Reeves in it, but also it's a wonderful and beautiful movie. The costumes are gorgeous, the special effects are gorgeous, the direction is gorgeous, the acting. Even Keanu Reeves isn't bad in that movie. Uh, I still stress he's not as bad as you remember. And it's a beautiful movie. And, you know, if you're going to recommend a vampire movie, you've got to recommend the main man, Dracula. And just kind of finishing off, I did mention The Crow a little bit earlier in this episode. And there are a lot of similarities between this movie and The Crow, but there's also a lot of similarities between this movie and Batman. So if you haven't listened to the previous episode on Batman, that's 153, then please listen to Batman. And also, if you've never seen Batman, the 1989 Michael Keaton, Tim Burton movie, and you enjoy this movie, you will probably find something to enjoy in Batman as well. As always, give me feedback. Let me know what you think of my recommendations. Now, the next episode, Heroes of the Decade, continues. So where have we been so far? We've been to the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. So we're going into the 2000s. And post the new millennium, we were introduced to the dawn of the new superhero genre of cinema. It started, of course, with X-Men in 2000, but I've already done X-Men, so I can't do X-Men again. I've already done X-Men 2, so I'm not going to do X-Men 2 either, and I'm not touching X-Men 3. I'm just not going there right now. So it had to be the start of a franchise in the 2000s. And when we talk about franchises in the 2000s, I mean, there's quite a few superhero franchises that started in the 2000s. I mean, the most popular one, the one that everyone goes for, I think is Iron Man. And I am not going to be doing Iron Man because there was another superhero that I really wanted to talk about more than Iron Man. And I've done a lot of MCU stuff and I wanted to focus on before the MCU. So there's obviously also the Fantastic Four, which was owned by Fox. Now, I'm not going to be doing the Fantastic Four because although those movies were fun and bright and a little bit campy and silly, there was one movie that changed everything when it came to superhero cinema. That movie came out in 2002. It was directed by Sam Raimi, who's obviously around a lot at the moment with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. But Sam Raimi gave us the first Spider-Man movie. And that little spider changed everything. It's also recently celebrated its 20th anniversary, which is crazy. How crazy is it that Spider-Man is 20 years old? And with great podcasting, comes great responsibility to go into the immense history and legacy of Spider-Man. So make sure you join me for that next week. As I said, supporting the show is free. This podcast is free and it always will be free. However, if you do want to support this podcast financially, that would be incredible and I would be so grateful. I am so grateful to the people who do because without them, this podcast would not be as remotely decent as it is. So a huge thank you to the patrons of Verbal Diorama. Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Christine, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian M, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Ian D, Sonny and Drew, none of whom I have it on record have ever tried to ice skate uphill. You can check out my merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. There are new t-shirts coming. They may or may not feature Keanu Reeves, but 
for the time being, you can buy the mummy-inspired t-shirts if you wish. You can get in touch. You can say hi, verbaldiorama at gmail.com, or you can pop over to verbaldiorama.com. And you can pop over to filmstories.co.uk. You can check out articles that I write and also buy copies of the magazine that I write in. There's a very special column in the next magazine. It was quite an emotional column for me to write because I decided that I wanted to write a little bit about Jess. Jess was basically the producer of this podcast for 145 episodes. She was a cat, by the way. She wasn't a real producer. I do all of that myself. But she was such a huge part of this podcast. And I decided that I wanted to write a little bit about her for the magazine. And it was incredibly difficult to write, but it was kind of cathartic to write about her as well. I'm still struggling to talk about her, as you can probably tell by my voice, but it was really important to me to kind of have that in print, to have something about her in print. And so I basically just let it all out in the latest issue of the magazine. Hopefully this has not been taken out. There is a huge column all about Jess and all about what she meant to this podcast. So, I mean, I'm not trying to make people cry because I do enough of that, but if that's something that you might be interested in reading, then Obviously, along with some of the really cool film stuff, then check out the new issue of Film Stories magazine. And finally, it's 90s blood rave time. Bye. Movie should know.